Uh, we've been going through Paul's letter to the Ephesians over the last uh, several weeks, and we are here in chapter 3 this morning. If you've got your Bibles, feel free to open those up. Um, people sometimes point out that books like, uh, letters like Ephesians, they, they, they kind of are divided along the first half being uh, doctrine and the second half being ethics. Uh, another way of saying that is that half of the letter is about what to think about what God is doing in the world, and the second part of the letter is what to do with that knowledge about who God is. Um, but if you look back on the last three chapters that we've been reading, I think you'll, you'll notice that they're not so much focused on teaching as they are a prayer. And, and chapter three really isn't any different, which is not to say that the first three chapters have not contained teaching within them. It's just simply that maybe it underscores the, the, the point that the best kind of teaching comes out of a life given over to prayer. And so Paul starts out with, For this reason I, Paul, prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. And then he gets a little carried away reflecting on what God's grace has been like, that he, of all people, would be chosen to cross the, the ethnic and cultural and, and racial barriers, uh, that he would be the one chosen to contend with these powers and principalities that created ethnic hostility between Jews and Gentiles that, that drove them away from one another, that he would be the one who gets to open wide and tell them of the wideness of God's mercy. So he goes on this little tangent before returning to that thought in verse 14, which is where we're going to pick up this morning. After reflecting on this love and this power of God that spills out into the world, Paul wants so desperately for these new ones brought into the family to know the height and depth and breadth of God's love. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Almighty God, we ask that as we come to your word, that we would be shaped by it. That through your word we may hear the depth of your great love for us. We pray this in the name of the one who is our peace, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, when our daughter Mackenzie was growing up, she had a favorite stuffed animal, a little stuffed panda named Baby. And, uh, you know, Baby was loved with a passion 
that was maybe a little bit too much for baby's own good. Um, those of you who have children, who have loveies, you, you know what this is like. I did a project in 2014 where I took a photo every single day of the year and I posted it. And I found throughout the course of that year that there were more pictures of Mackenzie with baby than without baby. If we went to the zoo, baby was there. If we would go on a camping trip, baby would be there with Mackenzie. If we would go to the playground, baby would be on her hip. The last day of school, baby was there. There's Mackenzie in her California chic, heels and sunglasses and all. First day of school, baby would be there to usher her into this new day. And I imagine from baby's perspective, this love was kind of like bordering on, you know, fatal attraction kind of levels after a while. Over the years, baby, uh, she started looking a little tired. <laughs> we'll put it that way. She lost half of her stuffing. Uh, arms had, you know, that had fallen off had to be re-sewn back on. At one point, one of her eyes was so scratched that, you know, Jill and I joked about making her an eye patch. Mackenzie didn't think it was very funny. But she was getting so, so gnarly that uh, we tried, even for a while, switching out for a new one. I talked about this with a couple of young parents last week. So, oh, you got to start early. Pro tip, start early switching out the loveys. So that, you know, because they develop this, this scent, this, this, this feel, this texture that marks them as their own. And, you know, it was too late for us. We, we didn't get there with, with baby. Uh, don't get me wrong. There were some rivals for baby's attention from time to time. I actually forgot about this one and blocked it out of my memory. <laughs> and these rivals, they kind of came and went, though. Um, it was always baby. And for reasons that defy logic, the more weathered and torn that baby got, the more loved baby was. If Mackenzie would go somewhere, there was baby. If for some reason baby couldn't go there, we would have a hard time getting Mackenzie to go there. Um, well, one day, M uh, Mackenzie and Jill and Grant, they went out on this family hike with uh, some family friends of ours at this uh, place called Crystal Cove State Beach, not too far away from our home. And uh, when they got back and we started, you know, getting the kids ready for bed, we noticed there was a problem. No baby. So we, we searched in the car. No baby. We searched all around the house thinking maybe she had gotten dropped. No baby. Well, as a parent, you know that you really only have one option at that point. So one of us, I don't remember which one, got back in the car, drove down to the beach, looked around for hours because there was no way that, you know, Mackenzie's love for this thing would demand anything less she said, you must go find, from her perspective, baby was in trouble and she needed rescuing. There was no boundary that she would not cross to get baby back. By the end of her life, baby was more dirt and matted polyester than she was a, a panda bear. But to Mackenzie, baby was beautiful. And she was beautiful because of how deeply she was loved. And in a way, that love made her a member of the family. 
This is what Paul wants the Ephesians to know. Specifically, those who, because of their past practices, because of their family of origin, because of their culture, were not considered part of the family. He wants them to know that in Jesus there is a love that comes to weathered souls that, who, are, who are flawed, who are broken, bent, and torn, but nevertheless loved and brought into a new family, given a new name. He wants them to know you belong, you are part of it. And he doesn't just want them to grasp this intellectually, he wants them to know it down in their bones. He wants it to move from their head down into their heart because if they are going to be this beloved community that presses in and does what it takes to, to, to be this new kind of family that God is writing into the world, then they are not going to do it in a power that comes from them. They're only going to do it in the love that comes from the one who draws them in and presses them forward. It says, you got to know how deep, how wide, how vast the love of God is. Uh, like a good number of his letters, Paul uh, writes Ephesians from a prison cell. And this was toward the end of his life. And, and in that space, he finds himself in chains for the proclamation of the gospel, for this stubborn insistence that there was another king other than Caesar and that this king had a kingdom that was going to outshine the empire in every way and that kingdom is beginning to set down roots in Jesus in this community that Jesus has founded called the church. And a little bit of his backstory is that he is in prison specifically for sharing the gospel with the Gentiles. We read about this in Acts chapter 21. This takes place just after Paul gets back from Ephesus. He goes to Jerusalem and he gets locked up. One of the charges filed against him is that he is bringing Gentiles into the temple, therefore defiling the temple. Specifically, he brings in an Ephesian named Trophimus. Another charge that he faces is blasphemy. Because he has the audacity to say that the temple in Jerusalem is not where God is located anymore. No, God is located, as he has been saying all along to the Ephesians, God is now found in his people, in this community that God is founding together. That is the temple that God now resides in. And so there's a riot. Read through the Bible, this kind of happens a lot with Paul. Kind of wherever he goes, a, 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 people want to drag him out of the temple. They want to kill him. The Roman garrison gets deployed and they say, Hey, aren't you that Egyptian that started an insurrection a while ago? Paul says, No, no, I'm, I'm a Jew. I was born in, in Tarsus. I was raised here in Jerusalem. That part of the story is not really at all connected. It's not part of the point at all. I just think it's a funny little interaction that they have in the Bible. But then for the rest of his life, Paul gets just kind of shuffled around in the prison system. And here's the thing, he, he's not mad about it, though. When he says, I am a prisoner on behalf of you Gentiles, he, he's not writing this letter to shame them. He's not, he's not writing this letter to make them feel bad about it. He's just reminding them of the story. He's in prison because he is so passionate about this God who wants to make a community out of all nations, a multi-ethnic community of his covenant. And he, he went to prison for this vision. He believed in it. And so there is no pity. There's no self-regret at all in here. Instead, he just turns it all into prayer. 
And the substance of that prayer is that God's love and God's power would be so evident to them that they would abound in joy and in hope. He wants them to know that. He wants us to know that. But the burning question that he wakes up with, the the thing that he's really focused on is almost certainly not what you and I woke up thinking about this morning. And the thing that he's thinking about is is this, is how is it that you and I, you know, most of us non-Jewish people here, unless, you know, you you may have done Ancestry.com and found out, like one of my friends, that he's one-eighth Ashkenazi Jewish. His grandma apparently has a really interesting story that uh, she hasn't told him. But for those of us who are, are not Jewish, who, those of us who are not part of the covenant family, those of us who are ethnic, cultural, religious outsiders, right? All the things we talked about last week. And yet, somehow in Jesus, we are brought into, we are grafted into the root system of God's family. And so the question that he is chasing down is, how is this and how do we become this? How can they, in spite of all those barriers of race and culture, right? How, how can they be this new family? How can, they, how can these Gentiles who are now brought in find their place and equal footing secure so that the mission of God redeeming and reconciling all people can go forward? How is this going to happen? Because in this new community, these, these powers and these, these principalities that, that, that fester our divisions that lead us to take pride in things like culture or, or ethnicity or ideology or, or, or what have you, he wants them to know those things do not have the last word. And he stakes his whole life on this radical idea that it's only through Jesus that that Jesus met the demands of the law, that Jesus is the new humanity, and that through him we can by faith be made alive and receive all of the, the power and authority that the kingdom of heaven has to offer. And so he's thinking about this, and he, he wants the Ephesians to just keep on going on this path that they are on. And so he, his desire for them takes the form of this prayer, and Specifically, in in verse 16, he says, Out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power in your spirit, in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell. And and the word there is to, to, uh, to live in, to take up residence in you. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, and here he's talking to the Gentiles, being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people. That's the whole church, Jews and Gentiles together as the covenant family. That together somehow you can grasp how wide, how long, how deep and how high the love of Christ is. And to know this love that surpasses all knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. It's this really odd tension of letting these believers know that they are already rooted and established in God's love, that that this has happened to them, that God has made this way possible for you, that, that God pictures them as this great tree whose roots have dug down deep into the soil. To be rooted means that you are being able to draw from the, the soil, the, everything you need for nourishment, your, your life, your food, your, your water, everything that will cause you and sustain you and cause you to grow and flourish, it's, it's happening there. 
It's what Jesus is getting at in John 15 when he tells his disciples, you are the branches. Cling to me like branches to a vine. You will have that power. He's saying you are adopted into this family. You're already rooted in good soil. You've got enough room to go deep. You're meant to draw life from the source, but it can also not happen. You can have access to this and not, not draw from it. And so on the one hand, he's encouraging the Ephesians that, that this is your reality. You are connected to the source of, of life and strength that comes from the life of the Trinity itself. And yet at the same time, he wants them to know that this is your reality. But I'm also praying that you're going to know that this is your reality. You can actually live that way. In the previous chapter, he calls them new humans. He wants them to live like that because they've been given the power of Christ to live in a new way. The power and authority of the kingdom is theirs. It's this classic example of self-identification, of taking on a, a new narrative about yourself. If you, even if you don't always live up to this new narrative, it's, it's your story. And even if you can't always live up to it, you can find a way to live into it. Become who you already are. It's important for us because it's, it's one thing to know about the love and the power of God. It's one thing to know about all the things that, that Jesus has done. But it's another thing to experience the love and the power of God. Another thing altogether to, to live in accordance with that story. It's so easy to live hollow or inauthentic lives because the thing that you, you think you grasp intellectually, it's not something you experience. And if you don't experience it, it's, it's easy to live like it's not there at all. I heard the story a while ago on NPR about an, an artist who was really, really talented um, but just couldn't find a way to kind of break into the art market. And so he was living uh, in poverty, uh, living in this little ramshackle college out in, uh, in Sheffield in England. And, you know, things got so bad that his wife ended up leaving him. And he kind of cycled into this, this phase of depression. And the thing that kind of got him out of this depression was... He remembered all the reasons why he loved painting in the first place. He, he remembered all of the artists that he, that he, that he emulated, that he, that he loved. And so he, he found solace in a kind of therapy in painting replicas of their work. And his replicas were really good. So good, in fact, that an art dealer bought one of them and sold them to Christie's auction house for 25,000 pounds. Well, so the art dealer's walking away, and he has this revelation of, maybe, maybe we can keep this thing going. So he goes back to the artist and says, hey, I will split profits with you if you can find more of these masterpieces. And so they work out this, you know, this kind of elaborate scheme to, to, to drop you know, the art in a certain spot. At first, the artist was like, no, I, I don't want to do this. Uh, but then he started thinking about how he wanted to provide for his children, how it would be nice to not live in a cottage that was falling apart, and so he agreed to do it. So they, they found a spot where they were going to drop the art. The art dealer was going to then wire money into his account. 
and they were going to just kind of you know, go off that way. So they, they, they agreed on this, this plan to, to go on, and the artist got to work. He eventually copied things by Matisse and Van Gogh and Vermeer. Each time that he would do this, the, the art would get a little bit more intricate and more complicated, but also more exact. And the payouts would just grow in number and, and size, and this went on for years. The art world is apparently still recovering from all these fakes that are out there. But the thing that, the story that really kind of caught my attention was that while the art dealer was kind of, you know, outliving large, he was, you know, buying cars and clothes and luxury items and all that stuff, the art, the artist himself, he lived like life hadn't changed for him at all. He was still living in this small cottage. And so when the, the dealer was caught, they found all of this stuff. They seized millions of pounds worth of cars and all this stuff. But when they came for the painter, they found that he had not touched a single penny of the money that was drawn into his bank account. And when they asked him, well, why did you keep going? You, you wouldn't have been caught. And he said, well, I just, I guess I always knew that it was there, but I was always so focused on the work that I never even stopped to look at how much money was there. Here's the thing, shady, you know, ethics aside, um, not encouraging you to go like Breaking Bad in the art world or anything like that. <laughs> but my question to you is this, if he had millions of dollars credited to his account, that was available to him at any time, but he never drew from it, was he really a millionaire? When it comes to the love of God, when it comes to the, the power of God, how often do we get so focused on the work that we never think about drawing from the count that is available to us? In a way, that's what Paul is getting at with the Ephesians. He says, your father has given you everything. The, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, it is available to you. If only you could know it, if only you could understand it, it would blow your mind. It's not enough to know that the money is in your account. You need to draw from it to know what it's really like to live. Knowing and understanding God's love means being rooted in that love. It means experiencing it. It means being grounded in it. It's something that you can only really know by experiencing it. And when you try to experience it, you're left groping for words, trying to tell others what it is like. I mean, have you had those experiences where, outside of all rationality, you simply were overwhelmed by the love of God? Those moments where you, you knew that you knew beyond all reason, beyond all description, that you were loved. I've told some of you the story about how I came back to faith when I was in my final year of, of high school. I, I won't rehash the details on all that, but it was one of those, I cannot explain it, God spoke to me, appeared to me, one of those palpable experiences when I was out in the woods in Montana. I'd come to the end of myself and found that at the end of myself, God was there like a prodigal father waiting to bring me home. And there were times when I wanted to explain it away. Times I didn't want it to be true. It was awfully inconvenient. 
So I would throw up all these intellectual reasons about why it couldn't be true. I studied philosophy in college so I could prove to myself that it wasn't true. And yet, the thing that always kept me from walking away from faith was this experience that I had that if I were to say it didn't happen, I would know that I was lying. Because in that moment, and I can still remember it with clarity, I knew that I was loved and I knew that that changed everything. And now I could live out what I knew. To the best of my understanding, that's what Paul is getting at with this idea of being rooted. It's this experiential, it's this existential kind of knowledge that it has the power to reframe everything we think is possible about the world. All of our spiritual maturity depends on our grasping the depth of God's love for us so that we can have this new sense of what God is able to do. We never did find baby out on the trail. We, we looked for her for a long time. And there were a lot of tears when we couldn't find her. And, and not just from Mackenzie. Um, I was reminded of William, uh, Marjorie Williams' great story, The Velveteen Rabbit, um, Throughout the story, this little stuffed rabbit is having uh, this conversation with, with other stuffed animals. He is, he is loved, he is treasured by his, his boy. And it, it, this kind of throws the rabbit into a bit of confusion because he's like, well, how can you love something if that something isn't real? And so he, he thinks, I must be real because I am loved. And so he's having this conversation with the wise old rocking horse. And the rocking horse says to him, real isn't something you're made with. Real is something that happens to you. It happens to you when you're loved. Paul is saying that you are made part of this family because of the deep, deep love of God And how deeply this love of God takes hold of us has everything to do with how we are going to be the kind of community that can welcome and embrace each other as family. It's, it's what fuels God's mission to the world. It's how you know and you grasp God's love to you. No matter how weathered, no matter how worn you might be, you are welcomed in. And once that begins to get in you, God's power begins to work through you beyond all that you can hope or you can imagine to accomplish the things that he desires. To give a sense of that, we're going to close uh, this morning with something a little bit different. And we've asked our overseas mission partners to each reflect a little bit on this passage in little little 90-minute segments. So we have four of our mission partners who agreed to do that. Uh, they're, they're reading this passage right along with us, and I want to ask you to pray for them, to pray that they would know the depth of God's love, that, that though they're scattered apart by him, we are all part of the same family. And I want you to ask that, that they be so captivated by God's love that he begins to do in and among them more that they can imagine or even dare to hope for. So let me turn your attention to the screens.
When I first read these verses or this passage, I was just kind of struck by, first off, how joyful it was, but also how much was in it. And so to help give myself context, because I haven't been in Ephesians like you guys have, um, I looked back to the previous um, part of this chapter, chapter 3, and just was kind of struck by how Paul was just reaching out to these, specifically these Gentiles, and just expressing how this mystery that had been hidden for so long was now revealed to them. And so then looking at this passage again, I noticed how he mentioned that he kneels before the Father from whom every name, um, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, and talks about how they get to rejoice in this with God's people and how this power is now within them. And I just thought, like how beautiful that would be to these Gentiles who for so many years hadn't been invited in. And now they're being invited in and they're being included. And not only are they being included, but they get to celebrate and rejoice and be a part of this love that is longer and wider and higher and deeper than we could ever imagine. And a God who hears us and does more than we could even think to ask. And I think that's what I saw to be the most beautiful is for these people who had never been included, they were being offered something so far beyond what they could ever have even imagined. In his letter to the church in Ephesus, the Apostle Paul writes this beginning in chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. He's praying for them. He's praying for the church, for the believers. What is he praying? He's praying that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith and that they may be rooted and grounded in love and that they may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So Paul is asking God to reveal the love of Christ, the presence of Christ, the work of Christ in our hearts, in our community, in this world, so that we may be able to comprehend that which surpasses our knowledge. We need God's help. We need God to illumine our hearts and minds so that we may understand and love the love of God and then turn to this world around us with his love and in his power. And Paul says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Italy, as many of you know, is full of Christian history. In fact, we're surrounded by images of Christ's love every day. But while we have visible images of his love, the reality is that it hasn't become rooted in people's hearts. Uh, we are doing a Bible study with some friends um, that they grew up Catholic. And one day when we were sitting around the table um, and talking, she asked why Jesus had to die and suffer so much. So joyfully we shared with her that that was because of the great love that God has for us. 
That love, like Paul says, surpasses knowledge. That Christ Jesus had to suffer and die to bring us back to God. So these verses remind us uh, that just as the Lord used our church family at All Souls to send down the roots of His love into our lives and ground us in Him, that we've been planted or transplanted here so that the same love might put down roots in the lives of other people like our friend. So that together with the church universal around the world, we might be able to comprehend the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of God's love that surpasses knowledge and fills our lives with all the fullness of God. I love this passage in Ephesians, and as I've meditated on it this week, and as we've been digging in Romans and studies I've been involved with with French people, one of the groups is in chapter 11. And there's another verse from Paul that reminds me of this passage. He says, oh, what a wonderful God we have. How great are his riches and wisdom and knowledge and how seemingly impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and ways. Um, and then here he is in Ephesians telling us how hard it is for us to even grasp how he loves us and how he indwells us and our finite minds just can't get our heads around this. Um, I think it's a great reminder, an example of prayer that we need to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to pray for our disciples. We need to pray for those outside the kingdom that they might have receptive hearts and one day be able to embrace his great love. And also we need to pray for ourselves. And of course, missionally, this is a great reminder of what we are inviting people to. We are inviting them to relationship, to intimacy with the Creator, um, and to new spiritual family. These are such compelling things that the Christian can actually draw others because of this love in us, because of the Spirit working in us. This can be a compelling thing for those who are watching. Um, so this, this to me, I just love the way it brings it all together, this idea of the master of the universe who is also the lover of our souls. To him be the glory. come to the table each week as a way of rehearsing and remembering and participating in the drama of God's story with us. And we do this not simply as a church body, but we do this with believers that stretch across all of space and all of time. We are a family of God together, sharing in the mysteries of God together. And at the, at the heart of those mysteries is a love so deep that it would forsake everything that heaven has to offer to love us, to bring us to where he is. And so as we come to the table, let us pray. The Lord be with you. Lift up our hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. 
On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered his disciples together in an upper room. And after he had given thanks, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, This is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat, all of you. In the same way, after he took the cup and poured it out, saying, This is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins, the cup of the new covenant poured out for you. Take all of you and drink of it. So it is that whenever we eat of this bread and we drink of this cup, we are proclaiming his dying until he comes again with great power. Friends, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. As we come to the table, let us proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Friends, come, take and eat and drink. Remember and rejoice. Amen.